Houston, we have a problem. If you were privy to any news headings this week, you may have heard of what's going on in the city of Houston. Uh, The mayor of Houston, who is openly uh, a homosexual, has asked five pastors to start turning in their sermons to her. Uh, These five pastors were uh, sort of taken off by what is Houston's Equal Rights Ordinance that gave homosexuals certain rights in the city that sort of exalted their sexuality in a way that it shouldn't. And these men uh, began to preach against that in their pulpits. They began to seek to repeal this ordinance. And the mayor uh, began to ask for their sermons or has asked for their sermons. And as you read sort of what goes on around that, you're taken back that our government over and over again takes a stance on this issue. They are going to declare to us what is right when it comes to sexuality and sort of to enforce their own will, even on the church. Now you hear that, and some of us sort of take a neutral stance on that. That's just sort of another issue. But if you're a pastor... And if you've been here over the last two years and you've heard any of the sermons preached here, you can imagine the way that I felt when I'm reading this story. Yeah, if you began just to look online at some of the sermons and began to peruse the, the way that we preach, and the, even when we preach about the gospel and marriage, there's a sense in which, yeah, this is all coming down. <laughs> uh, this, this could uh, mean something for us in the days ahead. And even as I read through that, I began to think of the consequences in my own life. And then I was reminded, no, that's the way it's always been for the church. And in our culture, we have forgotten that. We have forgotten in some sense that it has always required something to follow Jesus Christ. It is always required something to set our allegiance to the kingdom of Christ, to, to acknowledge that the kingdom of God is first and foremost. And we continue to read stories like that in our culture, and it should remind us that there has been this constant clash since Genesis chapter 3. The serpent speaks. There has been this constant clash between his kingdom and the kingdom of God. And we will be bullied, we will be pushed, and we will be pulled because this present age rages against the kingdom of Christ. There's no neutrality. The passage that we come to, Numbers chapter 22, vividly teaches us this. And yet at the end, it teaches us that there is only one kingdom that will win. And so as we come to the text today, the first question I want to ask you is, is God's kingdom a threat to you? Not is God's kingdom a threat to the mayor in Houston, because we see that it is. Not is God's kingdom a threat to ISIS, because we see that it is. Not that is God's kingdom a threat to your co-worker who lives however they want. No, is the kingdom of Christ a threat to you? Notice uh, Numbers chapter 22, verse 1. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab. 
They have made their way through the wilderness. They have defeated. They have gone around Edom. They have defeated Sihon. They have defeated Og, this ragtag group of slaves living as sons, living as kings in the wilderness. And they make their way to the plains on the outside or the other side of the Jordan, on the other side, the text says, of Jericho before they enter the promised land. But notice verse 2. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw them, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Now, up until this point in the story, Moab has provided even resources for Israel. Uh, All the other kingdoms have attacked Israel. They've come out and they've pushed them away. They see the threat they are. But we read in Deuteronomy chapter 2 that Moab has provided resources to them. They have blessed them. But now we see Israel is growing. The text says they have become many. And Moab begins to see this. And as they are camped before him, they are camped before Moab. And remember the last king they defeated was one who had defeated them. They become dreadful. The text actually says they are sick with their fear. This is a national crisis. This is Ebola. This is, oh my word, what are we going to do? These people are growing. They're going to overtake us. People in the streets are talking about it to the point that they are losing their mind with fear. And then verse 4. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde will now lick us up. Lick, lick all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. This ragtag group of slaves who's come out of Egypt, they have turned into this ox, this giant that's out in the wilderness, and they are zero turning, mowing down everything that is in their way, and now we are like grass before them. Think about the way these people are describing Israel. Slaves from Egypt, a group of people who just a few chapters ago are saying there's giants in the land. There's no way we can overtake them. They have gone to fearing giants to becoming the giant ox that is mowing down all other kings. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was the king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam. He he begins to look for a power beyond himself. He begins to look to something or something that will take care of him because he fears and he sees what God is doing. And the blessing of God has become a threat to him. So he seeks out this prophet named Balaam. This generic prophet, but he's known, his name actually means destroyer or devourer. He he is a cursing prophet, a sort of a witch doctor prophet with voodoo, able to to curse others, able to throw down. Even Balak believes other kingdoms here. We read through the story, there's actually a mystery about his allegiance, which is the point. Balaam here at this point represents neutrality. You have the blessing of God. God is doing his work. And now you have a pagan king who is opposing the blessing of God. And now you have Balaam who 
seems to be neutral in the middle. And yet he represents a power that Balak is going to trust in. Notice he sends messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, Pethor, which is near the river in the land, the people of Amal, to call him saying. Everything about this is describing neutrality. Balaam is in the middle. But notice the way he describes Israel. He says, behold, a people has come out of Egypt. Now the first question is, how did they come out of Egypt? They cover the face of the earth and they are dwelling opposite of of me. Everything that he describes there reminds us of the promise of God. God is the one who delivered them. God is the one who's fulfilling this promise that they would be fruitful and they would multiply and they would fill the earth. Remember, that's what scared Pharaoh to death. And he started killing the children of Israel. Everything he describes here is describing the blessing and kingdom of God. But notice his response, verse 6. Come now, curse the people. And what has God promised to his people? Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And so what is Balak doing? Join my kingdom. Curse the kingdom of God. And yet the promise is you will be cursed Notice he says, they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. And how has that worked for Pharaoh? How has that worked for Zion? How has that worked for Og? And notice, I know that he whom you, who you bless, I've been teaching teenagers all week. And so my, uh, I'm having a little trouble reading this morning. So lots of noise in my house over the last two days. I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. I know you have this superior power and I know you you have the ability to curse. Notice he has placed Balaam in the place of God. But here we see these two kingdoms warring against each other and Balaam sort of neutral. But what has caused this? The blessing of God the deliverance of God, the multiplication of God's people, the promise of God, God's kingdom is a threat to this king. And I wonder if you're here this morning and the same thing's going on in your life. You have been attending here for some time. Your family's coming. You've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you must turn from your sin and follow after Christ, that he is Lord, that he is king. And I wonder if that's a threat to you. You see, we like to act like it's just sort of some neutral thing that you can go through. Repeat this prayer after me. Go through these things and you're in. And sometimes we lose a sense of the threat that the kingdom of God is. As Jesus walked about and he said, in my flesh is the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand. There was no neutrality. And those who tried to remain neutral as he was hung on the cross were nowhere to be found. That's why we say things like, take up your cross and follow me. That's threatening That's why I would say things like, if you want to be a part of this, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And we want to say, well, he didn't, well, no, what he is saying is I have to be your everything. There is no neutrality. 
And you come in here today and maybe it's the blessing, the kingdom of God that is a threat to you. You are starting to realize that this Christianity thing is going to cost you something. It's going to mean something different for your family. And you are scared and you are longing for someone to tell you that's not true. You are longing for a Balaam. You're longing for a preacher who would just tell you, you know, you're special. It's okay. Do whatever you want. You're longing for some religious activity just to sort of tip your hat to God and get into heaven and then live however you want to. You're longing for a gospel of neutrality. And what the scripture tells us is it does not exist. The kingdom of Christ shakes and it quakes and it destroys the foundation of our kingdoms. And if we're not willing to let it go, we will find ourselves in the same situation that here Balaam finds himself in as he tries to remain neutral. Notice verse 7. Is the kingdom of Christ a threat to you? And if it is, are you trying to serve two kingdoms? Because that's what we see Balaam do here. Notice verse 7. The elders of Moab, the leaders of Moab, and the elders of Midian departed, notice, with fees. Here we find this neutral prophet. Now let's go pay him off for divin divination. Now this would have, was something that was rejected in Israel. It was an abominable. Abomination. They were not to seek after other gods, other visions, other philosophies. Notice, they're going to pay him off. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And notice verse 8. And he said to them, lodge here tonight and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. Now, throughout, it's obvious what God is going to say, right? These are my people who I'm blessing, and I promise to bless those who bless them. Now, this pagan king is asking you to curse them. And Balaam's like, let me pray about it. It makes no sense. It's the same thing we do in our life when we're called to do something for Christ. I need to share the gospel with that person. Well, let me go pray about it. Do you really need to pray about that? I'm wondering if I should leave my wife and my kids for this other woman. Let me pray about it. It's the same thing going on here. Should I curse God's people? Well, let me go talk to the Lord about this as the Lord speaks. So the princes of Moab stayed in Balaam and God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? The same thing happens in the garden. Remember, the snake speaks to Adam. And eventually God comes in and says, who told you you were naked? Now, God knows. He sees everything going on here. And yet God so often puts us in situations where he asks us these questions to reveal what's going on in our heart. And that's what happens with Balaam. Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me saying, behold, a people have come out of Egypt and they cover the face of the earth. Now, Come, curse them for me, and perhaps I will be able to fight them and defeat them and drive them out. Now, what do we expect God to say? Well, this sounds like a good idea. No, verse 12, God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. And Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. Here. 
God's not going to let me do this, guys. Yeah, we, we know that. that. That makes sense to us who are reading the story. But what Balaam is doing here is the same thing we do so often. Same thing Adam did in the garden. It's not my fault. It's this woman you gave to me. It's her fault. Actually, God, it's your fault. He is trying as hard as he can to carve out some neutral ground. Let me pray about it. Well, God will not just let, God won't let me do this. Verse 14. So the princes of Moab, they rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come to us. But notice again, once again, Balak sent princes and notice the text more in number, more honorable than these. Now, here's the reality. Stay here. Let's talk about this. Let me pray about it. It's not me that doesn't want to go. God won't let me go. He's giving ear to another kingdom. And here's the deal. Anytime you give ear to sin, anytime you give ear to the serpent, he's not going to relinquish. He's not. And we begin to see Balaam's heart. We begin to see what's going on there. He's trying to remain neutral. And yet what he is doing as he's remaining neutral is he's beginning to side with this other king. Notice he sends in reinforcements more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and they, they said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will do. Listen, money's no option. I will make you chief prophet in my kingdom. Notice he's offering him something that will crumble. But the enemy does not relinquish, does he? More money more power, an easier life. And so often we begin to give ear to those things that we know in the end will crumble. Ease and comfort and honor now will come to an end for him. Notice he says, come again, curse these people. And again, we see the blessing of God, the kingdom of Balak. They are at wars here. And Balak said to them, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, you could give me everything. I would not go beyond the command of the Lord to do less or more. And it sounds so spiritual. It sounds like someone else who looked Jesus in the eye and said, if all of these other men turn their back on you, I will never forsake you. And then we hear the rooster crow. Peter himself, who thought he could get some neutrality. I want a kingdom and I want it now. I'm going to take out my sword. I'm going to begin to chop ears off Peter who wanted the kingdom now. And we see the same thing with Balak. No, I'm going to protect myself now. I'm going to try to take some middle ground here. And he begins to talk in this extreme way. But again, we see his heart. And Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, though he were to give me his whole house. But then again, notice as we move down to verse 19. So you two, again, please stay here tonight. See, it sounds so spiritual. And yet he keeps giving ear to it. Lodge here. Stay here. Let's talk about it some more. Hey, I'm not going to do that. I hope God's listening over here. I hope he's listening. I'm not going to go with you. Stay here. Let's talk a little bit more. He's trying to find some neutral ground. Verse 20. 
And God came to Balaam that night and said, If these men have come to call you, rise and go with them, but only do what I tell you. Now, we realize that's impossible, right? The language here is communicating that that's impossible. If these men have called you, you go do what they want, but only do what I want. And we find out what Balaam really wants, verse 21. He rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went to the princes of Moab. The one who's saying, you could give me your whole house, everything you have. I would never curse these people. And he continues to give ear. And God's saying, well, if men called you, go. And there he goes on his donkey. You see, the reality is this is impossible. He couldn't have it both ways. Can you imagine a man standing before Balak and cursing his kingdom? He is going to be cursed. Can you imagine a man cursing the people of God? He's going to be cursed. And yet he's trying to find some middle ground. The same thing that we so often do with Jesus. I will, I'll go to church. I'll carve out little pieces of my time, energy, resources that I baptize with the gospel just to make Jesus happy. Just to sort of pay him off. Just to sort of give ear to him. And we, we put ourselves or we try to put ourselves on this neutral ground. A neutral ground that will eventually be wiped away. Let me pray about it. Should I really do this? I wonder what God would say about this decision. And so often we know exactly what God would say. We're involved in relationships. We're involved in friendships that we know are hindering our walk with Jesus. And yet we say things like this. If I didn't have that friendship, who's going to tell them about Jesus? And we try to spiritualize it. We try to find some neutral ground when we know it is toxic to the gospel. Or I know what my wife's saying about the time I spend serving the church, the money that we give. I know we should be doing these, or she wants to be doing these things. I wonder what God would say, though. And we try to find some neutral ground when the kingdom of Christ is a threat to us. And here, Balaam is constantly giving ear to this, this enemy kingdom, to this enemy king. And now we see him saddled on his donkey, walking off, riding off with the princes of Moab. And we have a picture of where his allegiance lies. See, the reality is, is when you say you're going to be neutral, what you are saying is I oppose Jesus. Because Jesus says either you're for me or against me. Either I'm Lord over all or I'm a liar and a joke. And we see here that God makes a joke out of Balaam. Notice verse 22 God's anger was kindled, and we've talked about that. We see where his heart is, but some of us would go back to verse 20 and say, he told him he could go. It doesn't make any sense. God said, go, and now he's mad at him for going. Sounds like somebody I live with. Can't do anything right. Don't do that. Are you mad that I did that? No, what, what's going on here? 
And yet God is revealing something that goes on in Balaam. He's revealing his heart. But also, as we think, is God schizophrenic? Is he arbitrary here? There's a point being made. And it is this. You can't control God. God is in control of this whole narrative. You think Balak's in control? And and now you think Balaam's in control with his, his voodoo? No, God says, I'm in control. Go, don't go. It's almost a cat and mouse game that God is playing here to prove his sovereignty and that Balaam is acting like a donkey. Notice, God's anger is kindled and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way of his adversary. There's no neutrality there. The angel of the Lord is God's chief warrior. And this wasn't a naked baby cherubim on our grandmother's shelf. This would have been a flaming warrior. This would have been Lord of the Ring, wraith type stuff in the middle of the road here. So you have Balaam, this powerful, almighty, black magic prophet. And now you have the angel of the Lord. There's no neutrality. God is defending his people here. But notice he is riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. Verse 23, and the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road. Notice Balaam doesn't see him with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And you imagine Balaam, what in the world? What is going on here? You've lost your mind. And notice what he does, what any of us would do. He struck the donkey to turn her in the road. And the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyard and the wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall, pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. And then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in the narrow place where there was no way to turn either right or left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. What is God doing here? He's not just protecting his people. He's telling Balaam, you're acting like a donkey, and you can insert your word there. You're acting like a donkey. The same way God's anger is kindled with Balaam, Now, Balaam's anger is kindled with his donkey. God's saying, you're treating me like a donkey, and you will be the one who looks like a fool. Balaam looks like the fool here. This all-powerful prophet who's supposed to curse the people of God, and now he can't even control his donkey. He doesn't even see the angel of the Lord standing before him. Notice as the text continues, Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Now, that's angel donkey start talking. Well, we're reading the Bible. Balaam was probably used to these sort of things, sort of voodoo going on. He doesn't check up one bit. He talks back to the donkey. Again, the text is saying, you look like a fool, Balaam, because you have made me a fool. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. 
This prophet who's supposed to curse the people of God can't control his donkey. And he's in the middle of the street wanting to put this donkey to death. Verse 30, and the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. Hey, Balaam, you've ridden me your whole life. Have I ever just gone off the road for no reason? Surely something's get down here. Something, sure, surely something is going on here. And here you are beating me with your rod out of anger. Verse 31. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. You see, there's no neutrality anymore. There's no middle ground. He said, you can't control your donkey. You look like a donkey. You're acting like a donkey. You're treating God like a donkey. Your donkey sees the angel of the Lord that you can't see. Your donkey is now speaking on behalf of the Lord. Balaam, do you get it? When you try to use God, when you try to carve out some neutral ground, you will end up looking like a fool. He's purging Balaam of his pride of his arrogance, of his desire to fight against the kingdom of God, of this thought that there can be any neutral ground. And the Lord said, the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. It's wicked. I, here we see the whole story. God is purging Balaam from this wickedness, from thinking he can use God for his own benefit. The the same way he uses his donkey who here is rescuing him. Verse 33, and the donkey saw me and turned aside before me three times. And if she had not turned aside for me, surely now I would have killed you and let her live. Your donkey is the one who is rescuing you. God uses the donkey to speak. He uses the donkey to rescue Balaam, who would say before this, I'm much superior to donkeys. Verse 34, and Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. Now he is ready to speak. Now he has been purged of his independence. And as we will see in the chapters ahead of us, he is ready to speak on behalf of God. Now what God does with the prophets so often is he paints a picture for Israel. We read the book of Jonah and we see the people of Israel were to be a blessing of the nations and yet they rebelled. Yet they did not want to send the light to the nations and yet God takes Jonah and he paints this picture. I will send you to the nations whether you want to or not. We have prophets marrying prostitutes to prove to Israel their sin and their wickedness. And here God takes the story of Balaam and he says to Israel, I am the one rescuing you. I am the one delivering you. I am the one taking you into the land of these foreign kings. Do not give ear to them. There is no neutral ground. 
And if you think you can use me, you will end up looking like a donkey. I will not be treated like a donkey that you ride to and fro. I am the Lord God. I am the one taking care of you. I will not be used. There is no neutral ground. In the same way Balaam is used before Israel. I wonder what that says to us today. We read this and it's humorous. It's supposed to be funny. Because so often our fight against God is humorous. Some of you here today would look back 20 years ago and you would see ways in which you were fighting against God. Things that God was calling you to do. Some of you, he was calling you to repentance. And you fought against it over and over. My grandfather, the evangelist, comes to his house one night during the revival. And he stands at the door. And he tells the evangelist, if you can find anything in the Bible that would tell me to go to church, I'll do it. Now, how stupid is that? If you ask an evangelist to find something in the Bible that would command you, that would lead you, that would bring you to church, I guarantee you he can do it because that's why he's at your house. And yet he goes to church that night and is saved. He looks back and he tells that story and just laughs. That was the stupidest thing I ever said, and yet that's what God used to save me. Some of those things are going on in your life. I know Jesus is king. I know he is Lord. Should I really follow him? Well, let me pray about it. That doesn't make any sense, but that's the way we think, and that's the way that we act so often. Here we find farm animals speaking. The foolishness of a donkey speaking to this prophet. And yet, It's the wisdom of God that's found in the foolishness of the cross that declares to us that all of our wisdom is foolishness. The cross of Christ, this instrument of torture, speaks to us that God can use anything, a donkey, a cross, a Roman trash heap outside the city of Jerusalem to save us. And yet we find ourselves arguing with it. Some of you come in here today and it's not a donkey or a farm animal you're arguing with. It's cancer. It's traffic. It's a circumstance in your life that God is using to prove to you there is no neutral ground. A difficult marriage, a difficult child, and you find yourself arguing, if I had a sword, I would destroy you. If you find yourself beating, and I wasn't talking about your child, destroying your child with a sword. Some of you may have said that that week. I didn't say that this week. But you find yourself arguing with inanimate objects, radiators, Transmissions, checkbooks, donkeys. And God is proving to you you're acting like a donkey. Could it be the thing that God is using to rescue you is the thing that you argue most against? There is no neutrality. And God is proving it over and over. There was another man who was riding not a donkey but a horse. 
And he was set against the church of God, the way, the the Acts, the book of Acts tells us that his goal in life was to kill Christians and stomp out the church. And yet he's on the way to Damascus. And what does God do? He blinds him and he proves to him there is no neutrality. Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it's the same thing that God is asking Balaam here. Why are you opposed to me? It doesn't work out. And a few books later, we find Paul saying, everything I had before that day on Damascus Road is now rubbish. And some of you are here today, and that's what God is doing. Everything that you had before this moment, you will look back and say is rubbish. Everything that you're living for, the kingdoms, the money, the career that this world, that this kingdom could offer you, you will look back and say that's rubbish compared to Christ. I don't care how Christ uses me now. My life is a blank check. And if I have to give up on it all, it's worth it for the sake of Christ. Many of you are at that point and my work word to you today is the same word to Balaam. There's no neutrality because the angel of the Lord is the same one who spoke to Paul on the road and said, no, there's only one word that you will speak. There's only one kingdom that will matter. And he is the same one who speaks to you. Now you come in here today and you say, well, I'm not, I'm not like the mayor in Houston. I think that's awful. I'm not opposing the church. I'm not, I'm not sensitive to ISIS. I, I'm not even a Democrat. As a joke. I know people get touchy about that. I guess I'll send my sermons in. But you're here today and you say, that's not me. I'm not cursing the kingdom of God. But the question is not, are you cursing the kingdom of God? Because it would probably be better for you to live here and to curse God, to leave here and curse God, than to leave here the way some of you will leave. Thinking you've done enough just by showing up. Thinking you've done enough by religious views on Facebook, Christian. I even posted the link from last week's sermon. And you're trying to find that neutral ground. There is no neutrality. There's only one kingdom that will win, and it's probably your kingdom that you're clinging to that is causing you the greatest pain. You realize that? Your kingdom, the things that you want, what you want to carve out is probably what's causing you the most pain. And you know how you know that? Because constantly it butts heads with the kingdom of Christ, and you know it. And yet the voice of Christ to us today is you cannot serve two kingdoms. Either Jesus is Lord or he is a donkey. Hopefully you know. Hopefully you understand. Hopefully you are confident that he's not a joke. He is Lord over all. 